Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to bring a message this morning entitled simply, The Gospel. The Gospel. 1 Peter chapter 3. I think one of the most powerful verses that summarizes so succinctly and yet completely what the gospel is. I do want to read it in its context. Uh, Peter is giving verse 18 in the context of suffering. He is assuring uh, the readers to whom he's writing that though they are going through Christian trial and suffering and hardship, that God is able to work through that time, to work good in their lives, uh, to use suffering redemptively. And as an example of that, he points to the suffering of the Lord Jesus and the redemption that we have through his suffering. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? I'll uh, begin reading at verse 13. Peter says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, or the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Father, this uh, Passion Week, we want to pause and reflect upon your goodness and grace, upon the sacrifice of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Without Calvary, without his death, burial, and resurrection, we would still all be in our sin and be most miserable among men. We thank you for doing for us what we could never have done for ourselves. Father, I pray that time would be spent this week in reflection, in gratitude, in study of the scripture, those passages that tell us about Calvary. Lord, thank you for your ordained plan. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who we know that uh, the nails didn't hold him to the cross. His love for us did. And I pray that if any be here today that do not know Christ in a personal way, that today they would clearly understand the gospel. The idea of substitution, the fact of substitution... And they would trust Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. And Lord, Peter talks here about always being armed and ready. 
to give an account of the hope that we have within us. And so this week, this Easter week, I pray that you would give us boldness and courage to, uh, to share what we have experienced that others too might come to a saving knowledge of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Here are a few of the greatest misconceptions that have continued to live down through the ages. I want to give you three of them in particular. Topping the list is that the Great Wall of China is the only man-made structure that can be seen from the moon. Now the funny thing is, is that this myth was popularized even before the first lunar landing. And surprisingly it has continued up to this current day. The fact of the matter is no man-made structure can be seen on earth from the moon. A second misconception is that goldfish have no memory or at best maybe a a two or three second memory. But scientists have actually discovered that goldfish recognize their own owners. They've been trained to remember how to swim through very complex mazes. And they've even been trained to push a lever to get food within the same one hour period of time each and every day. And so instead of saying to someone that they have the memory of an elephant, maybe you want to start saying they have the memory of a goldfish. A third misconception is that Danish pastries come from Denmark. Uh, Actually, they originated in Austria and were inspired by Turkish baklava. A Danish chef popularized them in the early 20th century in Western Europe and in America and hence the name has stuck. But if you were to go to Denmark today and ask for a Danish pastry you would probably be met with uh, puzzled looks and gazes. On and on the list goes. There are lots of ideas out there, many of them simply wrong, misconceptions. Now folks, you know with most of life, unless you're trying to be a contestant on Jeopardy, it's perfectly fine to be wrong over such meaningless trivia. But not so with the gospel of Jesus Christ. To misunderstand the gospel is eternally deadly. And so no wonder Paul was so insistent to the Galatians that if anybody came preaching to them a gospel... That was not the gospel. He said, let them be condemned. Let them be anathema. You see, the stakes are just uh, too high because we're fighting for the souls of men and women. Well, on this Palm Sunday, I want us to begin reflecting on the events of Passion Week. These events celebrate the heart of the gospel. The gospel is not... To love your enemy as to love your enemies or love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now those verses are important. They express the Christian ethic that grows out of the gospel. They certainly describe how followers of Jesus Christ should live and should conduct themselves. But those verses are not the gospel. Likewise, the gospel is not to go around the world and and build uh, hospitals and orphanages and fight hunger. Again, very important activity that grows out of our Christian commitment. But you don't have to have Christian faith to do those things. In fact, many groups that don't believe anything go around the world and do those things. Well, with all the misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian, I want us to look this morning at a verse that explains the gospel so succinctly and yet so completely that I've simply called the message today on this verse, the gospel. That's so important to understand the gospel for two reasons. First, because the very one who is the gospel, namely Jesus, said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so your salvation depends on a proper understanding of the gospel. And secondly, because not everything that claims to be Christian is Christian. It's quite common these days when somebody says they're a Christian and you ask them what that means, they say they're a good person and they're simply trying to get by doing the best that they can. And they've equated that with being a Christian, which I hope we all know is a false understanding of Christianity. The world so often misunderstands what it means to be a Christian. And sadly, even those in the church today often misunderstand what it means to be a Christian. What is the gospel? Well, Jesus Christ is the gospel. And so today I want us to focus in on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the first thing I want you to notice with me this morning from verse 18 is the fact that Jesus' death was special. We're going to look this morning that his death was special, that his death was substitutionary, and thirdly, that his death was sufficient. But the first thing I want you to notice was Jesus' death was special. Jesus Christ died when he was approximately 33 years of age. Now, other than the fact that he was so young when he died, nothing seems unusual about the fact that Jesus Christ died. We are all acquainted with death. People die all the time. The Bible says you and I have an appointment with death. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. We know in America that for every 1,000 people each year there are 8.3 deaths that are measured at the mid-year point and that is referred to by, by sociologists as the crude death rate. 8.3 for every 1,000 people. And so my point is that we're all very acquainted with death and and we know that if Jesus tarries, each and every one of us will die. I've quoted for you before George Bernard Shaw. He said, the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one person's die. Now usually not much is recorded about a person's death. If you were to flip back, 
to uh, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 5, and just read through the narrative there. It would quote very long lifespans, and then it would say that person died, and it would move on to the next. Then you jump over to First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and read that long list of kings there, and it says uh, he lived, he reigned during this period of time, and he died, and then he was buried with his fathers. He slept with his fathers. And nothing more is said about that. And so we are very acquainted with death. My mother-in-law jokes about death that she looks at the obituaries every day to make sure that she's still alive. But folks, when we come to the death of Jesus, although death is all around us and there's nothing unusual about death in the world, when it comes to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know immediately, we're clued in immediately that there was something very unique, something very special about his death. In fact, one third of the Gospels is devoted to his death. We could say everything about Jesus was very special and unique. His birth was special. He was born of a virgin. His life was special. He's the only sinless person to ever live. And his death was also special. Now I want you to understand about his death. His death was special as it relates to sin. You and I will never understand the death of Jesus until we understand its relationship to sin. You see, sin brings death. God talked about this in Genesis chapter 3. You'll remember in in Genesis 1 and 2 when God created Adam and Eve, He put them in, in paradise. He put them in the Garden of Eden. And he was such a gracious God. He gave them of everything, but they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life. And they ate of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan came along and he tempted Eve to partake of that fruit, and she did, and gave to her husband. And they ate of that tree, and the Bible says their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. But the significant thing about that is God had specifically commanded that they not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan had come along and said, when you eat of that, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. And so he tempted them. He tried to make them think that God was stingy and somehow or another restricting them from something that they needed. And so they ate of it and immediately at that point in time they were separated from God and they were hiding in the garden and God came looking for them saying, Adam, where are you? Well, in the conversation God had with them in Genesis chapter 3, he pronounced a curse on Adam, one on Eve, and one on the serpent. And he said to Adam, Adam, from now on your toil is going to be very laborsome, uh, cumbersome. You're going to labor by the sweat of your brow and the earth is going to produce for you thorns and thistles. And, and Adam, also you're going to die. You came from the dust, I created you from the dust, and to this dust you are going to go back. You are going to die. He died spiritually, he died physically. 
But his sin had brought separation and brought this curse upon the human race. And the Bible says you and I die for the same reason. Paul in Romans 5 says, Therefore just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now that brings up an interesting question. Why did Jesus die? Because he was without sin. I want you to see secondly related to this that Jesus' death was special because being ordained by God it was yet voluntary. And so in a sense Jesus' death was a real paradox. He didn't have to die and yet he did have to die. It was in the plan of God. The Bible says that Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world. And so in that sense, he had to die. It was the ordained plan and will of God. But folks, in relationship to sin, he did not have to die because he was sinless. He died a voluntary sacrificial death. He laid down his life for us. In John 10 he said, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. One artist has uh, painted a picture of Jesus as a young man in the carpenter's shop and on the wall behind him you can see the shadow of the cross and that's how Jesus lived his life in the shadow of the cross. In Matthew 16, 21, the Bible says, From that time Jesus Christ began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Jesus' death was special. Secondly, though, I want you to understand that Jesus' death was substitutionary. He says here that the just died for the unjust. It was substitutionary in nature. Christ did not simply die as a martyr for a good cause. That happens all the time. Maybe you read this week in the news, maybe you were touched by the story of young 29-year-old Dennis Weichel. Dennis Weichel was a sergeant in the military serving over in Afghanistan. And over in Afghanistan, the little children play in the street and they pick up shell casings because in, in a poor society like that, they can take the shell casings over to the marketplace and they can sell the shell casing and help, help support their family. And so one day here recently, week before last, Dennis was, was watching these children playing in the street and all of a sudden, here came a military convoy traveling at a rather rapid speed. And here was this little girl who ran back out into the street collecting shell casings and was oblivious to this 16-ton armored fighting vehicle that was approaching her and the driver of that vehicle could not see her. And, And so as the story was reported, Dennis ran over into the road and he scooped up that little girl and he threw her out of harm's way and that armored vehicle ran over him and he died a few year, a few days later from complications of being crushed. 
Yesterday, his body was flown back stateside. Young 29-year-old man about to be married. He died a hero's death. He died a martyr. What a wonderful example Dennis Weichel is to all of us. But folks, Jesus didn't die simply to set us an example. Now true, his death is an example. He said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. But that's not the real reason Jesus died. Why then did he have to die? Because God is a holy God. If you could narrow down the description of God to just one word, I suppose the best one word description of God would be that He is holy. Now on the other hand, man is sinful by nature and by choice. And I realize we don't hear a lot of that today. You pick up papers and and read that man is violent or that someone has this disorder or that disorder. But never ever once in the media will you hear men being described as sinful or depraved. And yet that's what the Bible says that we are. And we know that all sin will be punished because God is a holy God. He will not simply overlook sin. For God to wink at sin and pass it over would mean that he's no longer holy. He will punish sin. But the wonderful thing is that he's willing to punish sin through an exchange. A substitute. And we see this idea of substitution running all through the Bible. John R. W. Stott says, The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man. I want you to also see substitution as seen in the Old Testament. If I were to take you back right now, in fact, this afternoon, I would encourage you to go back and read Exodus 12. Exodus 12 is where we're first introduced to the the Passover lamb. You'll remember what Moses said to the children of Israel there in Egypt, that that night was going to be a very special night for them because they were going to be delivered out of the bondage of Egypt. And so they were to take a Passover lamb... And they were to kill it and they were to take the blood and they were, to, they were to sprinkle it over the doorpost. And God said, when I see that door over, uh, that blood over the doorpost of your home, the death angel will pass over. You'll be spared. They were to eat all of, uh, they were to roast the lamb and, and eat it all, showing that it had to be appropriated. And they were to eat it in haste. And that certainly tells us any time anytime we hear about this wonderful salvation of God and the substitute he's made for us today in Christ, we need to receive Christ in haste. 
But God passed over them and delivered them out of the bondage of Egypt through that Passover lamb. And the Bible tells us, you can read the book of Hebrews, the Bible tells us that all of those lambs prefigured, they were a shadow of what God was going to do in Jesus Christ. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then there was that lamb on the day of atonement. The high priest would take, the the lamb would be killed. He would go in the Holy of Holies and, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And he did that one time of year, uh, one time a year. And it had to be done. All of these sacrifices had to be done over and over and over again. Because as the book of Hebrews points out again, lambs, forgiveness, and atonement can't come this way. Those were simply a, a, a shadow of what God was trying to tell the people he was going to do one day in Jesus. And they were only covered for another year until the next year rolled around and all of those sacrifices had to be made all over again but Christ was the perfect Lamb of God so it only had to be done one time he's the Lamb of God we know that as on that uh, on that what we call today Palm Sunday as they were entering into Passover week All those lambs had been raised in what was once known as the fields of Boaz outside of Jerusalem near Bethlehem and they would be brought into the city through the east gate on again what we call Palm Sunday and and, and scholars tell us that during Passover week as many as a quarter million lambs would be slain. And as those lambs were being brought through the east, uh, through the sheep's gate rather, Jesus Christ was riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday through the east gate. Those lambs were brought into the city and they were examined by the high priest and, and all the religious leaders for three days. What was the point of that? Because again, they had to be shown that they were spotless lambs, a male without spot or blemish. And so the high priest would examine them, the Pharisees, the Sadducees would examine them and only those pronounced spotless or without blemish could be Slain as a Passover lamb. During the same period of time, what's Jesus going through? He's being examined by the Pharisees and Sadducees, by the Herodians, by the civil leaders, the political leaders, until finally Pilate says, I find no basis for a charge against him. He was the perfect lamb of God. I want you to read with me from Isaiah what was going on here. Again, the idea of substitution. From Isaiah chapter 53, beginning there in verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's borne whose griefs? Ours, yours and mine. 
carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. And back then, the way the thinking was back then, that if you suffered, it was because you had sinned. You remember Job's friends? Job's friends thought Job was suffering because he had sinned, but not necessarily the case. And here's a case in point where a person's uh, uh, sin did not cause suffering because, again, Jesus was sinless. And so Isaiah, writing centuries before the life of Jesus, points out it was all for us. He says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us uh, peace uh, was upon him and by his stripes were healed. Where are we in this picture? In verse 6 it says, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I are sinners. We have transgressed the law of God. We have broken the holy, just commandments of God. We are guilty. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not a one of us in this room this morning that can stand before God in our own righteousness and say that we have not sinned because we have all sinned in many ways. And the Bible says if we break even one of the commandments of God, we've sinned against the whole. We are, on our own, we are done for. Again, there's this idea of separation in the Bible. Sin brings separation from God. And we live our lives in our lost state. We live our lives separated from a holy God. And then if we die in that state, we stand before God's judgment one day and we hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. And so we experience eternal separation. But the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. And he died in your place and my place. The only one who could die in our place. You see, if I die for you or you die for me, it's just one man dying for another man. But Jesus Christ is the perfect God-man. Fully God and fully man. He lived a life without sin. He was able to go to the cross, Calvary's cross, and be your sin sacrifice and my sin sacrifice. He died in our place. God made an exchange so that we might be clothed in His righteousness. Substitution, the idea of substitution. We see that beginning all the way back at Genesis 3 and that theme of substitution running all the way through the Bible and and climaxing there in Jesus Christ. And we know that week, that that, uh, Passover week, as those priests were raising their knives to kill those little Passover lambs, that Jesus Christ on what we call today Good Friday, right as they would have been killing those Passover lambs, Jesus Christ said, Tetelestai, it is finished. It's finished. The payment has been made. 
We know at that time too that, Roman, uh, that criminals under the Roman system, when they would put you in jail, they, they would post a notification there with, with your name and your crime and your punishment that you had to serve. And then when you completed serving your sentence, they would write underneath, they would mark through your sentence and they would write underneath, tetelestai, meaning it's been paid in full. Again, what did Jesus say on the cross? Tetelestai. It's paid in full. Amen? All through the Old Testament leading up to that. And then we come to the New Testament. Write down a few verses because I want you to see that substitution is also very much embedded in the very theology of the New Covenant, the New Testament. In Romans 5, 8, the Bible says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God through Him. Substitution. Do you remember when you were a little kid, you would pile up dry leaves, take a magnifying glass and and let the sun go through that magnifying lens and, and glare in on that pile of leaves and you would burn up that pile of leaves. Well, that's what God was doing with our sin on the cross. It's like he was zero in all of his wrath against sin, all of his judgment against sin there upon Christ on the cross and he died in your stead and my stead. The promise is that through Jesus Christ, you and I can be reconciled to a holy God. And that's what I want you to see finally. Jesus' death was sufficient. Peter says here, Christ died once for sins. You see, again, he didn't, he didn't have to do it over and over and over again. Once was enough because he was the perfect sacrifice. He died once for sins, the just for the unjust. Why? That he might bring us to God. Somebody might say, well, did God really accomplish what he was after? Absolutely. Absolutely. Isaiah 53, 12 again says he would see his sacrifice and be perfectly satisfied. He died that he might bring us to God. What's the writer of Hebrews say? That seeing that we have such a high priest, we we can now enter boldly into the presence of God. You see, before we couldn't. In the Old Testament only one person could and only one time a year the the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. But now Jesus is our high priest and because he's died for our sin and we stand before God clothed in his righteousness, we can go boldly into the throne of God and make all of our petitions known. And he's a sympathetic high priest because he's walked in our shoes, he knows what it's like. To to live in our shoes, to be flesh, to face all trials and temptations we face yet without sin. And so as we have needs in our life and we go before him and ask for his help, he makes intercession for us. 
But the point is we can now because of his sacrifice, because of his substitute, if we stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we can go boldly before the throne of God and know that we have entry there. Romans 5.1 says being justified by faith, we have access before God. The word used here that he might bring us to God is the Greek word, the way we would bring it over into English is prosago. And in the noun form, prosago stands for somebody who ushers you into the presence of somebody very important, a mediator. What's the Bible say in 1 Timothy 2? There's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's our prosago. He's not only our sin substitute, but he's the one who now carries us into the presence of God. Now let's bring this down for a moment on the basis of just simple politics. And let's bring it down to a, a local level. If you were, were going to go to Mar to see the mayor of Concord, North Carolina, you got another thing coming if you think you're just going to barge into the government building, walk through the lobby, walk through his lobby down his hallway and right into his office and say, here I am. You're going to have to have an appointment and you get there and out in his lobby there is going to be a prosago. It may be an administrative assistant or it may be a secretary. I don't know who, who his prosago would be. But the fact of the matter is there you're going to meet somebody who is going to be responsible for then taking you in to see the mayor. You're not going to get in without that process. Jesus is our prosago before the Father. Through, through the redemption that we have in Christ, we have access to the throne of God. And now, instead of separation, there is what? There is reconciliation and there is peace with God. And then there's the assurance. Not only can I go before Him now with all of my needs, you see, salvation is not just for after death. Eternal life begins the moment we trust in Jesus Christ. Our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and we have eternal life. And we have abundant life. Jesus Christ is with us now. He said, I'll not leave you as orphans. And then should we die? We don't have to fear eternal separation, but we're ushered into his presence. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Amen? Folks, that is the good news of the gospel. The gospel is not about religion. It's not about the Ten Commandments. Should we try to live by the commandments or the golden rule or love your neighbor as yourself? Of course. But we're not saved or justified by those things. The gospel is not the law. The law condemns. The gospel is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And Him alone. He's our substitute 
He's our prosago who brings us to God. Mohammed doesn't bring you to God. Buddha doesn't bring you to God. Religion doesn't bring you to God. Being a Baptist in and of itself doesn't bring you to God. Jesus brings you to God. He's your prosago. In Him we have freedom, we have liberty, we have forgiveness, we have peace with God, we have reconciliation with God, we have justification before God in His presence. He will not see me covered in my own sin, but rather covered in the righteousness of Christ, covered by the blood of Christ at Calvary's cross. He shed His blood for me and you. And if you're in Christ, you have nothing but freedom, liberty, and heaven to look forward to. But if you stand before God one day in your own righteousness because you have lived a life separated from God and you've died separated from God separated from His substitutionary plan you die in that state and guess what? You're ushered out into an eternity without Christ separated from God. You stand there in your righteousness or Christ's righteousness. You will give an account of your sin or Christ will be there and say, Father, this one is mine. And every one of us, one of these days, will be in that position. I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes, please. I wonder about your condition today. Are you simply trying to be a good person, a religious person, a Baptist, or maybe some other denomination that you belong to? Just through philosophy, religion, some some way like that, you're trying to be good enough to make it to God. It'll never happen. And one of these days you will pay the ultimate price. Eternal separation. Today as there's somebody in the sound of my voice. It could even be somebody in this choir right here and behind me. That would say, Lord, what you did at Calvary. I need that to count for me. I believe today that you are the perfect Lamb of God who takes away all the sin of the world. And I've been trying to be good enough or live by the commandments or some other way. And I see that I'll never make it that way. You sent your Son to be my sin substitute on the cross. He took the punishment I deserve, the wrath I deserve. And today I want to trust Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. Come into my heart. Forgive me. Live your life through me. Give me your peace. Do your work in my soul so that I will be regenerated and born again. A a new creation in Christ. Lord, give me the assurance today that based on your promise... That I'm your child now. I want to live in fellowship with you, not separation. Forgive me through Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
Again, everybody one day will stand there. Our righteousness or Christ's righteousness. Trust Him today to be your sin substitute. And if you trust Him to be your sin substitute, the Bible says that you are to confess Him before men. There's no such thing as a secret disciple. You need to trust Him as your Lord and Savior and follow Him in believer's baptism. And become a member of a fellowship of believers. We'd love to have you here. If you feel led somewhere else, just so you're a part of a fellowship of believers. So you can read your Bible and study and grow with other believers. Confess Christ today. If you do feel led to this fellowship, we'd love to have you. You too come forward. For the majority here, I would assume, who've already made this decision. Again, I want you to see today that he's your sympathetic high priest. You have access before the throne of God. He's your intercessor and advocate. You may be going through something tough in your life. And just knowing you right there in your seat there, or if you feel a need to come publicly in some way and bow at this altar and say, God, just I'm going through something. I need your help. I need you as my sympathetic high priest. Help. He will. He'll give you strength.